This is one of those episodes I have trouble quantifying. I enjoyed watching this episode, and I'm actually quite curious to hear how many of you guys enjoyed this episode as well. But if you look at it fundamentally, it's not actually that good of an episode. <clears throat> it suffers from two pretty major flaws in it. First, the entire episode, for up until about the 33-minute mark, so a huge chunk of the episode, is all very slow, very well-done build-up. Ron Jones's music and the excellent directorial work, which I'll talk about in a second, really contributes to this atmosphere of sort of creepy, unknown mystery. It is very well presented. And then there's what amounts to no real payoff to that. It's more like, oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I almost feel like that, that deflates the episode in several ways. The other major problem with the episode is that this episode does a massive disservice to the two predominant characters who are throughout it. So this is a an episode primarily with about Riker, Worf, Picard, Data, and Pulaski. Everyone else has a couple of lines, but those are the major players. Riker and Worf are terrible in this episode. I think that's the nicest and simplest way I can say that. Now I know I am the most uh, <laughs> negative and cynical person on the internet. But it strikes me as very strange, even as of season two, where we've had a decent amount of characterization for both by this point, that Worf is a microbrain and Riker is an idiot. I'm not actually joking about either of these, by the way. This is not me attempting to insult. Worf comes across as someone in this entire episode in multiple ways, in the scene of the holodeck, in the scene when the Hull first shows up, in the scene where he uh, is in the meeting, in the scene where he goes over to the Yamato, the fake Yamato. Every scene that Worf has a major role in, he comes across as someone who is just barely holding back the reins of his own savage bloodlust. And Picard even has a line, which Worf isn't in the scene yet, but Picard has, Picard has a line, you know, some aspects of Klingons, yeah, let's just not, let's just not go into that. Why? Was that what they were going for? The idea that Worf is an unbridled, unstoppable rage machine, except he happens to keep himself controlled all the time? I don't know. I think they went a little bit overboard with that. And Riker, oh my god, Riker. I... I there's a lot of lines where Riker comes across as if he's half asleep. And he repeats a lot of unnecessary information out loud, in some cases, to himself. There's a lot of examples of this in the whole episode. My two favorites are, one, when he first goes over to the fake Yamato, looks around for a really long moment, and then says out loud to himself, this isn't the bridge. Uh, yeah, yeah, we know that, Riker. <laughs> we aren't stupid. Um, th thank you for informing us of that. Like I know, I know. In-universe, why does Riker say this? Think about Riker, the person, beaming over and ending up where he doesn't expect. Do you think the Riker we have come to know over the years would just look around and be like, well, this isn't where I'm supposed to buy. Sorry, I shouldn't do an accent, but you get the point. The other example that I love is when he gets back onto the Enterprise, he's like, let's just put all this technology at work and try to, to get the hell out of here. That line, to this day, doesn't make a lot of sense to me, unless the deliberate intent was to make Riker seem like an idiot. Now, if I was willing to give this episode credence, which I'm not, by the way, 
I would say that the point of this was to showcase how certain people interact with the uninteractable. In other words, how do these people deal with the unknown, with the mystery? Worf goes, <laughs> freaks out, right? Riker just shuts down mentally. Picard basically ramps up. No, we're going to deal with this, and we're going to deal with this here, and I'll call your bluff, you know, that kind of a thing. And what's funny is I know this script was a completely original script for TNG. I know this. It, it's I've been reading up on this frickin' writer's strike and all the crap that happened revolving around it. But this episode feels like it would fit a little bit better in TOS. Obviously, Riker wouldn't be Spock, and Worf wouldn't be, like, a Sulu in that case. But you could see how Picard's presentation is much more kirky, uh, <laughs> as weird as that may sound. And... I don't know. It's a it's a more of a high concept episode. But let's talk about the positive stuff. That's actually all I really have as far as nitpicking goes because there is like I said this is a weirdly enjoyable episode. Uh I can't read my own handwriting. Winrich? Winrich? Hang on, hang on. One moment. <laughs> look, I can't read my own handwriting, so I'm going to look something up here. Uh his name is it is Winrich. I'm correct. Gosh darn it. Don't question yourself, Lore. Winrich Colbe, this is actually his first directorial debut. I, I, I'm saying that completely wrong. This is the first time he has directed for Star Trek. And I think he did a really good job with it. See, they handed him a script and said, okay, you've got five sets. Most of them are the same sets over and over and over. It's a bottle show. Remember, financial issues and the script issues, so they were just like, make something happen. He's like, okay. And he, like a good director, he saw the challenges that he was facing and was like, okay, okay, I'm going to go ahead and try to do something with camera angles and with positioning and with choreography so that the episode doesn't get boring. For those of you watching along with me, I urge you to pay attention to the usage of the camera throughout the course of this episode. It moves around a lot more than normal, and I think it legitimately helps to keep the visual pace of things going. Between Ron Jones's music and Mr. Colby's directing, I think that really, really helps to elevate what would otherwise would probably be a fairly lackluster episode. Um, now, that being said, I think the script for this episode is frankly bad. Let's start, I mean, I know I said I'm done with negative things, but I'm sorry, I forgot about this. Um, so the episode starts, and Picard is clearly noticeably bothered, like, oh. And he sits down, and Troy's like, what's bothering you? And he's like, oh, it's Worf and Riker. And then they're down on the planet, and say, like, oh, we've got to fight alien monster death things. Now, assuming one is going into this episode with the mindset of having never seen it before, what would you assume? Now, I don't know what you would assume. You are, of course, as ever, feel free to put your thoughts in the comments. I love reading your guys' comments. Uh, today's actually a Monday from my perspective, so I've, I have actually read a whole bunch of your guys' comments just this morning for the episode that just went live. But I first thought, oh my god, they're on some incredibly dangerous away mission. Oh, they're on the holodeck. So why is Picard all upset? Keep in mind, we do know for total certainty that they do have safeties on the holodeck as of this point in time. They mentioned that in The Big Goodbye. So it's possible the safeties were turned off for right, for Worf's Kalinetics, but that still doesn't really explain why this is this big, incredibly tense moment that you're super worried about. Further adding to that fact, 
Then we go down to the actual scene. Riker and Worf fight out their respective opponents, which is cool. And then Worf nearly attacks Riker. Why? Before you jump to your comment section, let me add something. I know what most of you are probably going to say. Oh, it's because he was he was in bloodlust. First of all, as I've already said, I don't really think that's doing the character a service, and I really can't believe that Worf, Worf, would be so bloodlusty that he would actually try to attack Riker after finishing that. I, I find that hard to believe, even at this point in time. Remember, we have had some characterization for Worf as of this point in time, and it's been pretty good stuff. So this feels like turning the character and trying to gear him in a completely different direction, which will never be followed up on ever again. Like, he is much more controlled than that. Worf is the kind of person who would think about doing things like that, but he, but one of the defining traits about Worf is that self-control, that discipline, that adherence to duty, that makes it so that he can't just go like he might think about or want to do. So the idea of Worf being like, actually doing it, that's just, I'm sorry, what? Now, I have actually, because it's me, I've decided to go ahead and come up with my own headcanon idea for what was going on with Worf. I don't think he was going to attack Riker out of bloodlust. I think he was continuing his training exercise. Now, we don't know the circumstances here. It's implied that Riker either asked to be joined or Worf invited him. That this is something that is personal to Worf, that is being extended to someone who either respects or sees as a friend, right? Riker does have that line, you know, you do this every day, and Worf says, no, no, I do much worse than this, much more personal than this, but, you know, something like this. And Riker's like, okay then. Now, I mention that because I feel like Worf was like, all right, now that let's done, let's, let's us duel, yeah! And I could kind of see that, Worf doing that. And thus, when Riker's like, Lieutenant, oh, Okay, well, I guess we're not exercising. Because it's worth noting that Worf, and I mean no offense whatsoever to Michael Dorn, as much as he goes, he doesn't strike me as bestial. He recovers instantly. He's just like, yeah, okay. Fighting is over. Toss the weapon away, right? That's my take on it. I'd love to hear your guys'. Shoo. Um, really quick aside, this is another thing TNG has already been doing across Season 1. They are scanning the Morgana Quadrant. Why is that relevant? Well, at the end of The Child, they said they were going to be going to the Morgana Quadrant. I really appreciate little stuff like that, and that's one of the reasons I mention it. I don't have much to say about it. I just want you to be aware of what I have noticed as well, and therefore can appreciate in hopes that you'll appreciate it as well. I like those little touches. So, one of the cool things is there are deliberate contradictions built into this episode. This is part of where the approach to the episode does work in spite of itself. They see a big bluish, purplish, blackish thing. And they say, well, I'm not sensing anything from that. Now, under other circumstances, I might be inclined to uh, point out that, well, if you're seeing it, then by definition, sensors should be picking up something. Light is a thing that can be scanned. But in this case, it adds to the mystery. The presentation of, well, there is something that we, with our physical bodies, can see, but our technology cannot. It is the contrast between what we know and we, what we don't know that then produces the element of mystery, the element of not belonging, and that's a predominant theme throughout the course of the work, which I do like quite a bit. Now, I do want to ask you guys a question. Do you think that this was a coincidental happening? Let me explain what I mean by that a little bit better. I've heard some people postulate, for many years actually, that Nagilam had basically deliberately left this thing there, the portal, 
into his dimension or sub-dimension or whatever, specifically to catch the Enterprise and to, and to study them as kind of a first contact protocol. I kind of like the theory better that he stumbled into them the same way they stumbled into him. They're just exploring this new quadrant of space, and the Nagilim, or his people, or his crew, or whatever, is exploring this quadrant of space. They kind of happen into each other, and they both do the same things to each other. Like, in different ways, with different mentalities, but it shows a mirroring of the motives behind both sides. That one thing, that one trait that they both share in abundance. Curiosity. Now, that probably wasn't intended by the writers, but I do like that idea, and it's, it's kind of become my new headcanon for this situation. I also like how Worf brings up his legend of the, the pitcher plant, the psychic pitcher plant. Those of you who've seen Voyager know what I'm talking about. I find that funny because it implies that the Klingon legend is absolutely true, which, if you pay attention, almost every Klingon legend turns out to be absolutely true, so this is kind of a recurring trend. <clears throat> Anyways. So then Pulaski comes aboard. Now... We all know how divisive Pulaski is, and I know everyone in the world hated me for last week's, or will hate me. That video hasn't gone live yet, so I don't actually know, but I imagine I will get lots of hate comments on the child, which is fine. I understand that. Um, but then Pulaski comes on board, and she is frankly rude and visibly discomforted in the presence of Data. Now, she only has her one real interaction with him. You know, magnify, magnify, magnify. Um... It does, it, sorry, emphasis, it does know how to operate this, yes. And then she turns around, she's like, I'm sorry, Mr. Data, I'm not. And then she screws up the apology. And that's all the interactions between her and Data, really. Now, I bring this up because on first viewing, my reaction was probably the same as everyone else's. Oh, you rude. But then I thought about that for a moment. I rewatched the scene and I was like, okay, I kind of like that. Now, again, I have no doubt this was not the intention of the writers. But I feel like the actress, remember, she is a good actress. I can't remember her name, forgive me. The, the actress who plays Pulaski. And the director, who is a great director, Colby does a lot of great works over the next several years, managed to pull some nuance into that scene that wasn't intended. Because what she is, is uncomfortable about the fact that she is discomforted. She is obviously uncomfortable in the presence of data. She's not used to artificial life. That makes sense. Artificial life is kind of new, even in Star Trek's time. And the idea of artificial life being truly sentient and sapient, like data is at least postulated to be, is something that some people are just going to have a hard time getting a hold of. Now, it's not. this is Star Trek, so it's not hate throwing sticks and stones, but there's still that unease, right? You add on to that for the fact that Pulaski is an old-time, old-country doctor kind of a feel, right? So she's a little more old-fashioned, as we will see throughout the rest of Season 2 as well. So she is even more uncomfortable around him than she normally would be. And then you add on to that the fact that she tries to make up for it and screws that up and feels bad for it. That's why I say she's uncomfortable about feeling discomforted. I'm trying to use different words just to make it easier to understand me. In other words... I like the presentation of her being human. Because most people do have certain types of groups or people or jobs, right, organizations, where we're just uncomfortable around them. Now, some people just kind of accept that. But then some people, and I've noticed this many times in my life, some people don't like the fact that they're uncomfortable. And that's what really bothers them. Not the android, but the discomfort at the android. Make sense? It's a nice little human moment.
Anyways, so the whole episode is this wonderful slow build. It really is. And I like the, the increasing complexity of the experiments as they go, which is funny because it's kind of the same thing the Enterprise crew does as well. They kind of keep upping their game each new mystery. But so first we have, they're in there, there's no exit, okay? But then there's the loop, you know, they, they drop the thing and then they, they find it. Then there's a Dideridex, okay, here's a hostile force. Here's a friendly force. Let's split the crew up. Let's loop the crew. Let's try to force them to abandon the crew. And it just kind of keeps escalating in different structures. It, it almost feels like a legitimate scientific experiment. Like whoever wrote this sat down and put some time and effort into thinking, what would I be doing? if I was trying to study these people. And I think it's wonderfully eerie. <sighs> um, it's also nice, really quick, that the moment they have communication issues, Picard says, beam them back immediately. No hesitation, just, nope, get them back. Of course he can't, because Nagilam is interfering with the equipment. Remember, the power goes out a little bit too, and he messes with the sensors a little bit. And, of course, he manages to damage the ship with his fake Dideridex. And then he has the Dideridex explode in one hit, but no debris. And then they could beam on to nothing. I'm pointing this out because he obviously can fiddle with their technology. Keep that in mind in the back of your head, okay? So, um... <laughs> then there's the Worf and Riker scenes. I've kind of already said all I have to say about them. Worf is... And Riker is... Whatever. Moving on. Then Nagilam shows up at the 32-minute mark. Now, they do a wonderful job with Nagilam. He is distant. I don't mean physically. I mean, he is distant in his tone, and he sounds almost bemused most of the time he talks. He sounds detached, as if none of this has any personal significance to him, a very amoral kind of a mindset. And he is just enough familiar to be disturbing. He hits right that wonderful sweet spot of Uncanny Valley where it's just, you're looking at that like, what am I looking at? Good God, right? Wonderful job with Nagilam. In fact, there's one thing that I didn't even realize I was noticing as disturbing until I really sought, sat and thought about it for a second. Nagilam doesn't blink. I really like that little touch. I, I, hands up, how many of you noticed, without me mentioning it, that Nagilam doesn't blink? It's a wonderful little detail. So, what I really find interesting, other than the, the dog barking, is that Nagilam comes across as detached, but relatively pleasant, or I guess just more scientific, not overtly threatening, not antagonistic, not, <laughs> yes, your souls will be dissected at the, no, no, there's nothing threatening about him at all, and there's actually a lot of really good dialogue going back and forth between him and Data and Picard and Pulaski. Good stuff, probably my favorite overall scene, especially since it then ends with him talking about, hmm, how interesting. And then he kills the ensign to demonstrate death's existence and then cessation of his existence, which is at 1 minute and 33 seconds later. So we have a good 93 seconds of him just conversing normally and calmly with them, giving the audience just enough time to try and overcome their own unease before being like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to kill your crew. But no evil intended still. Just fascinating. The line that has stuck with me all these years since I first saw this as a kid was... I will have to study every kind of dying. That has horrified me ever since I first saw this episode, and continues to to this day. There's a lot of ways to die. In fact, there might be about 500 ways to die, which is appropriate, because half the crew... 
Um, most deaths aren't really quick. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't know what else to add to how incredibly creepy that is. Also, one really quick aside, and I only mentioned this because I noticed it and I just wanted to comment on it. The Ensign, I can't remember his name, Pascal, I want to say was the name of the character. Um, he, the actor does a really good job of, yeah, like as if everything is seizing up and then he just curls up into a ball and he can't move. And the camera pans on him several times as he's staying there. He stays very, very still. The problem is you can tell that he's, his, like his adrenaline's still up a little bit because you can literally see his nostrils flaring with how heavily he's breathing. It's, it's just a nice little detail. In character, we can assume that maybe he didn't really die, you know, or maybe that was just, you know, some kind of automotive reaction. I don't know. So. Then they have the meeting where they decide to go ahead and blow up the ship. Isn't that always the way? I like how Pulaski, despite not really liking the idea, doesn't really op oppose it. Now, I point that out because she is the one who mentions, isn't that a little bit like killing the patient to stop the disease? But she doesn't really bring any significant opposition to the idea. Now, that makes sense to me because she has a brain. This isn't a choice between living or dying. Uh, this is a choice between horribly being tortured by a creature who has, no, who has total power over you or choosing to end your own life. Um, I'm, uh, I'm kind of with Riker on that one. I'd rather go on down with the ship, thank you very much. So they go down. They start the self-destruct. The self-destruct pr proceeds normally. There's a wonderful scene where Data and Troy enter Picard's quarters. Props to both actors, Brent Spiner, Marina Sirtis. Both of them seem completely normal with like one degree off of separation. Like, like they're just a little bit off of normal in their presentation. Now... I could forgive Picard not noticing that, but I wanted to give credit to the actors and to the director for leading them in that direction, because they're both fakes, they're just Nagilim. But what I like about that scene is Data says, what is death? And Picard's like, oh, God, you got to ask me that. By the way, fun little aside, Data asks across the course of this show, what is death and what is life? And both times, the people he asks can't give him a direct, linear, this is the absolute definition answer. And I like that. Picard gives his own answer. And I love the way he presents it. First, he presents the idea of whatever you want to call it, the afterlife. Then he presents the idea of total oblivion, like you're gone after you die. But he does so, and this is really important, and this is what I love about Star Trek when it does it well. He does so without mocking either idea. He doesn't say, like Star Trek too often does, he doesn't say, this is correct. He just presents the ideas without mocking or belittling or enlightening either and just lets you decide your own. And then when asked his own thoughts, he just says, I believe we are part of something more. He says it in a far more wonderfully flowerful and very Patrick Stewart kind of a way. But ultimately, that is what he says. I believe we are part of something more, as I like to think of it, part of the equation. And it's a great little scene and a very human little scene. Then he discovers that they're Nagilim. <sighs> then Riker is like, yes, please shut down the... They leave. Um, Nagilim says, hey, uh, you suck, you suck, uh, you suck, and you suck. I don't think we'll ever interact with each other again. And Picard says, no, no, we're both curious. And Nagilim says, actually, you can hear the chuckle, like, yeah, okay, you got me with that one. And that leads me with my final thought. And I have thought this since I was a kid. Although, well... 
Why can't he stop the self-destruct? Remember, I pointed out earlier that he has no problem affecting them and their technology. He could fiddle with their sensors. He could adjust where the ship was. He could have the ship take damage. He could fiddle with the lights and the power. He could adjust where the transporter was going to. Now, some of these could be debated, but I have absolutely no doubt that Nagilam, with the kind of power or technology or whatever at his disposal, he would have no problems stopping the self-destruct. Why doesn't he? I think this was... Now, as a kid, that used to bug me. I used to think it was a plot hole. As an adult, looking back, I think this was the test. I think he never had any intention of killing off 500 crew members or 300 crew members or whatever. I think the whole point was to present them the dilemma, the final complexity, where you've revealed your hand, but in so doing, are provoking the, the, the target to see how they react. That is the final level of, 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 a, of an experiment. All right, now that you have understanding and awareness of the fact that I am experimenting on you, what do you do? And so they threaten to, to destroy themselves. So he sends a few half-hearted attempts to be like, okay, I will try to convince you not to. Nope, that didn't work. I will let you go. Okay, you're still not going. And then they finally go with it. And Picard says, you know, you did learn it. And Nagilam flat out says, I learned all I needed to. I think this was always the test. My opinion. Not that that excuses the death of the Ensign, but if I'm being completely honest, I like the headcanon idea that the Ensign actually basically got back up after this, off-camera. It's like, all right, I've learned everything. There you go. I'll explain why I was breathing, at least. <laughs> That's all I've got for today. I hope you've enjoyed, and I'll be seeing you guys next week with more Star Trek.